Please open your Bibles to the book of James. Feels like a long while since I've been in, in the pulpit, and it's only been one week. I think when Peter preaches, it just feels so long. So. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. We return this morning to the book of James. and uh, This chapter breaks nicely into two sections. The first is partiality or discrimination, favoritism, whichever synonym we want to use, verses 1 through to 13. And then uh, the second part, uh, it's the relationship between faith and works, that is verse 14 through to 26. So I'm going to deal with it in those two sections. As normal, or as usual, I will not rush through it. There's a lump of verses that I will pull together because it's an illustration, and that we will look at next week, that is verse 2 through to 4. Um, but for the most part, I will take my time to go through it verse by verse. Now, at this stage, you should know the breakdown of the book. I've given it to you at least six times. So, let's do a quiz. I'm going to call on somebody. You see their heads go down. I'm just joking. Chapter 1, verse 1 through to Verse 12 deals with faith and trials. Not chapter 1, I mean section 1. The second section deals with faith demonstrated. We're looking at verse 19 through to chapter 3, uh, sorry, chapter 5, um, and the end of chapter 4. And then the last section deals with faith illustrated. Some examples to consider how faith looks in saints. So that is the breakdown of the book, and I'm sure most of you have that down. We find ourselves in the middle section of the book, which is faith demonstrated. How faith looks in the life of a believer. How faith demonstrates itself in various trials, tribulations, and and, uh, practical aspects of life. Faith is always active. James doesn't have to state it because he demonstrates demonstrates it. Faith, saving faith, honors God. It honors God through wise acts of righteousness. That is the fundamental principle that you see running through this book. James provides a practical component of how faith lives, what it looks like. This theme of wisdom, which I've mentioned quite a few times, runs concurrent with faith. And so you will see him alluding to acts of wisdom, how wise faith is. And there's a reason for that. Because those who have been saved by God, given faith to live by God, will also also ask for wisdom from God and live in accordance with God's will. Faith is never isolated, never acts by itself. Faith begins with a a relationship that is initiated by God in verse 18. Of His own will, He brought us forth. God provides the capacity for men and women to be saved. It is God's will that causes us to be born again. Then secondly, faith relates to others. Not only does God initiate faith, but God places His faith in the life of a believer, and that believer demonstrates His faith before others. It's never isolated. Faith is never an island that can be put by itself to live for itself. If that happens, there's a problem with your faith. If you are comfortable in being away from God's people, there is a major problem with your faith. Now, as we enter this chapter, chapter 2, we will see this interpersonal nature of faith a little bit more vividly. James wants to demonstrate how faith looks on a one-to-one basis. As we approach this, there are two common hermeneutical dangers that we need to avoid. Number one is familiarity. Chapter 2 is one of the most commonly quoted passages in the Bible, especially today. 
with the rise of discrimination, with partiality and favoritism of certain groups and races, this is quoted quite a lot. Caring for the poor, James chapter 2. Taking care of the poor, James chapter 2. Familiarity also leads to presumption. And that's the second danger. Not only are we familiar with the passage, and so as a natural result of that, we think we know the passage. And so we just jump to conclusions and jump to application without doing a thorough study of God's Word. So I'm going to try to steer us away from both familiarity and presumption. The two generally go together. Now let's take some time to read this passage. And I'm going to read verse 1 through to 4. I'm going to ask you to put your presumption aside and forget the fact that you've heard this passage before, quoted or read about it. Make this the fresh new uh, experience to James chapter 2 verse 1. Think of yourself as being a Jew in the first century receiving this as you are fleeing persecution. Verse 1, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? What a powerful passage. Making distinctions means you exalt yourself to the place of a judge. Mm. I believe the point of this passage is pretty clear. There is one command. It's found in verse 1. Show no partiality. That is the point that James is making. If you forget everything else, this is what you need to walk away with. Do not be partial. Do not discriminate. Do not show favoritism because that is the main point that he's trying to, to make. The illustration, verse 2 through to 4, elucidates this point. He illustrates what it looks like, what discrimination looks like in a church context. The rich are favored and the poor are discriminated against. And I can already see some wheels turning. Don't put the brakes on. Don't think culturally about this. Not yet. Hold on. James provides a personal and a historical case why the rich must not be favored. Now, some of you are a little bit more well off than others. And so now you are probably starting to feel a bit of heat. Why on earth would James reject the rich? And if you are listening online or to a streaming, um, while it's streaming, maybe you are rich. And maybe you're a Christian, and you're thinking, well, if that's the case, why be a Christian if God favors the poor and rejects the rich? The challenge we have is not so much with the separation of rich and poor, and that is a problem in and of itself, and I will look at that in a moment's time. It's the familiarity with favoritism. When we think of partiality, we think of it in terms of how we understand it. Now, there is a lot of overlap, but there's a significant way in which James uses it in this passage. Our frequent use of this term today has culturally tainted our understanding of what it means to be partial. The first thing we think of is what? Racism. I'm going to say that this passage is not as straightforward as we may think it is. And that's the challenge of familiarity. For instance, Dwayne Warden, who wrote in, uh, in, in the 2000s, I remember reading this a while back, so I was trying to find it. It was in a, a, 
um, evangelical, was it a journal of evangelical jets of the evangelical, well, I forget the name of the, there you go, yes, of the Evangelical Theological Society. And he wrote this quote. The message of James is at least this. Christians are to be people who sympathize and influence. Sorry, Christians are to be a people whose sympathies and influence are to be for economic and social justice for the working poor, for the uneducated, for the disfranchised of societies where they live. You can already see how social justice has found its way in the church or in the theological circles, evangelical theological circles in the 2000s. Christians ought to favor public policy, now we're heading into politics, that allows people who labor to have some, take note of this, reasonable share in the goods and services their labor produces. So give them shares in the company. They need to be able to have some sort of um, remun- not, not only being paid for their job, but compensation for the fact that they are working in a specific trade. James is, this is him, not me, this is Dwayne. James is on the side of the poor. He is more concerned that the laborers in the field that is they receive their wage than in than defending an abstract principle of free enterprise economics. End quote. This is called economic racism. So there's a separation between those who have and those who have not. Those who reign and rule and those who work for them. That's the problem. This author, like many commentators today, read the book of James and think through it culturally, not historically, but culturally today. And they fail to make the proper connections. They jump immediately to application. Well, this is what James means, that those who are the working class of our day, we as Christians need to support them, help politicians make public policies that help them, the working class. Why? Because it is wrong for the rich to um, oppress the poor. It is wrong to have a two-class system where you have rich oppressors and um, the, the oppressed. I don't think that is what James is talking about. To help us understand this passage a little bit better before we get into uh, James chapter 2 verse 1, I'm going to do a historical cultural build background build from the book of James. And what, what I want you to understand is it's two things that James gives us in the book, which we do not take for granted. We should not take for granted. It is in the book. He tells us who the rich are, and he tells us who the poor are. And often that is ignored. Number one, the ungodly rich are condemned. Number two, The poor are not beggars. And I want to make that clear that James is not talking about the poor that we think of today. He's got a specific group of poor people in mind. So as I build this historical context from the book of James, when we head into it, I hope it will help you see why he speaks the way he does about the rich and about the poor. If we keep these things in the forefront of our minds, maybe, just maybe, chapter 2, will become a little bit more clearer. So we need to understand who James is speaking about. Why he says, my brothers, show no partiality. So I'm going to answer the question, why? Why does James say that? Why does he say, show no partiality? Number one is this. The ungodly rich are always condemned in this book. The rich are always condemned in the book of James. And I want to put that limitation on the book of James because you find rich Christians elsewhere. So the rich are presented in three different passages. James 1, verse 9 through to 11, James 2, verse 1 through to 12, and James 5, verse 1 through to 6. So you don't have to write them all down. We will get through all of them. I promise. Look at verse 9 through to 
11. Let the lowly brother, and here the lowly must be contrasted with the rich. So it's the humble brother, the one who's been brought low through circumstances, the, the, the Christian who is in a lowly circumstance, boasting his exaltation. So not necessarily poor, but he may be poor. Let him exalt in his, uh, let him boast in his exaltation. And the rich, take note, there is no qualification as to say the rich brother, but the rich person in his humiliation. So let him glory, let him boast, but he's glorying in what? Humiliation, in being brought low. Why? Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass Away. In other words, he will die. Just like a flower, a wildflower of the grass, he will have a short time in which he will enjoy the sun, and then he will soon fade into nothing. Verse 11. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls off, and its beauty perishes. So often commentators say, well, this is a general statement of the um, frailty of mankind in that he will just eventually pass away. Uh, no, he's talking about the rich specifically. The beauty of the flower is compared to the rich man. It's short-lived. And so the rich man will not only be short-living, but notice what it says about the beauty of the flower. It will perish. That word is never used of a believer. To come to naught, to be destroyed, to be ruined. If you keep in mind that James is talking about scorching heat that destroys a beautiful flower, that is not a beautiful picture. That is a picture of hardship, affliction, probably judgment. The rich man is compared to this beautiful flower in its temporal nature, but also in the way that God deals with him. He wipes him out. So also will the rich man, in the midst of his pursuit, fade away. He will fade away as he pursues his riches. This word perishes, like I said, it's never used of a believer. Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. For the preaching of the cross is what? Foolishness to those who are perishing. Who's that? Not believers. It's often used of those who are ungodly, unbelievers. Now James says, while he runs after his heart's desire, God causes him to perish. His pursuits end up in his own perishing. God brings him to nothing. But there's a contrast in verse 12 that is often missed. So also will the rich man in the midst of his pursuit fade away. That's what happens to the rich man. Look in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains what? Steadfast under trial. Think again. Scorching heat. Things that brings um, uh, destruction to the beauty of the flower. What happens to the rich man, in the, the poor man in the, in the midst of his trials? Should I say the blessed man in the midst of his trials? He endures. The rich man fades. The blessed man endures. The rich man is no more. The blessed man is. He remains eternally. There's a contrast that James is making for us, and we often miss it. Now, I know that there are those who say, well, this verse 9 through to 11 is a Christian believer. I find it hard to believe because the rich in James is consistently the same group of people. So whether you are in chapter 2, chapter 1, or chapter 5, they are consistently the same group of people. So James provides this contrast between those who are brought low and the rich man in chapter 1. You find a second, or I should say the third, because I'm going to jump over the second, which is chapter 2. There's a third reference to the rich in chapter 5. So go over to chapter 5. I will get back to chapter 2 in a moment's time. This is the challenge that I have with modern commentaries that take the word rich and just 
overlay it over the rich today without taking the time to look at how James describes these rich people. So in chapter 1, they will fade. They will have riches. They will enjoy the riches, but they will fade. Don't worry about them. But take note what happens to the rich in chapter 5. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidenced against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Wow. That is super condemning. I don't have a better adjective. (laughs) That is tremendously condemning. I don't know if you can apply this to a Christian. Notice what he says. There is a contrast here. You rich. And again, a lot of commentators say, why would James speak to rich unbelievers in a church? That is not usual. Well, have you read the prophets? Have you read any of the Old Testament where the ungodly are spoken to? Especially the the kings who are ungodly, the scriptures are written to them. It's not uncommon. Your riches have rotted. James speaks about you, 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 rich. Look at verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you get back by fraud and are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters, harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Hmm. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. That's you, rich. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He, the righteous person, does not resist you. He does not say, you have murdered your brother, the righteous person. If he's talking to Christians, it is an easy change. It's an easy inclusion, but he does not do that. Why? Two different groups in mind. Those who are Christians working for those who are rich, the rich are burdening the poor, and not only so, they're condemning the poor by murdering them. If these were Christians, surely would have said, you murdered your brothers. These rich people are under condemnation. And that's why he mentions in in verse 1 of chapter 5, come now, you rich, weep, And howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. You're going to be judged. So you've had your life. You've had your enjoyment. You've had your best life right now. Because you've laid up your treasures right now. That's it. This is the fullness of the enjoyment of the entirety of your life. But it is over. Because God will judge you. And I will look at that later. Look at verse 7. How he speaks to the brothers. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the day of the Lord. Until the coming of the Lord. So they will have their riches, they will have the enjoyment, but you be patient. What you do not find, patient, what you do not find in the book of James is what social justice, wokery, wokeness, or the BLM crowd are purporting. Fight for your rights. Have a little piece of the pie. Make sure that they pay you for what you deserve. What does he say? Be patient. Why? Because the Lord is coming. The question should be, why does he encourage them to be patient? If you go back to chapter 1, verse 2, what does he say? Count it all what? Joy. Because God has brought us upon you. See, poverty we think of as anathema. We think it's a sin. We think it's wrong. Yet God is the one who sovereignly arranges life so that some of us are in a worse state than others. Why? So that those of us who have can care for those of us who do not have. 
I want you to know that there is a difference between them and you. The rich man oppress you. They blaspheme the name. Where do I find that? Look at chapter 2. I think this is the most condemning of the rich. This is crystal clear in my mind that this cannot be believers. Verse 6. I'm going to read from verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has God has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones, are, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Do you see the contrast again? They, they blaspheme, but you were called by the name. They are not the same group of people. The rich in the book of James are the ungodly rich. They do not share the same reverence for the honorable name of the Lord. Where does his name appear? Chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord, Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. They defame the name because they are not saved by the name. They blaspheme the name because they do not know the name. But you, you have been called by that name. All in all to say that the rich are the ungodly rich in this book. So it is hard to take that cultural aspect, that historical significance and just take the rich in the book of James and say, well, there you go. All rich is implied here. Well, let me ask you then, if this includes every person that is rich, what about Cornelius in the book of Acts chapter 10? He was a rich man. What about uh, Joseph of Arimathea? Not only owned land, but had a, uh, a tomb that he could give away. <clears throat> what about Priscilla and Aquila who owned a business and were able to help other churches? What about Lydia in Acts chapter 16 who was a seller of purple dye? She owned a business. That's, that is just the book of Acts. What about 1 Timothy chapter 5, where Paul speaks about the rich Christians? If it's the rich as a general statement, then the Bible contradicts itself because it's not only the poor that are saved. They are rich Christians that have come to saving faith as well. All the rich are not condemned, but the ungodly rich are condemned in the book of James. This is not the point that James is making. He's not condemning riches, or the rich. He's condemning the rich in their context. This specific group in this church because the, these rich have somehow, a, were somehow, somehow able to um, have an influence over the church. Not only do we have a wrong understanding of the rich, but we also have a wrong understanding of the poor. Like I mentioned to you in verse 9, the lowly brother there is possibly a person that may be poor because of circumstances. This would be circumstantial poverty. A person who has been humble, brought low. The poor in this book are those who have a knowledge of fishing. They know how the ways of the sea work. That's why he uses that analogy. The poor in this book are those who are farmers. That's why he uses the analogy in chapter 5 of farming. Most telling in chapter 5 verse 4. Take note of what he says. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. These were working people. Keep that in mind. The poor in the book of James were working people. How is it possible? How can you have working people and still have poverty? Well, 
They didn't have the structures that we have in our society today where you have the rich, the middle class, and the poor. And the poor can be broken up into various categories. And I've mentioned this before. Poor in the Bible is not poor as we think it is. You could be poor for a variety of re um, reasons. In the Old Testament, if you lost your land, you were considered to be poor. You may not be uh, begging poor, but you are still considered to be poor because you lost your land. The poor in the book of James are not the beggarly poor. The person on the street who is sitting on the sidewalk asking for a piece of bread. That is not the kind of person that he's speaking about. He's talking about a person who works. And sometimes he gets his wages, but most times he does not. And so because of the discrimination and the, the bad treatment of this worker, he ends up into poverty, in, in poverty. Due to external circumstances, they are brought low and they struggle to meet their needs. Not only so, the working class poor are condemned when they take these rich guys to court and they are murdered. Verse 6, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. The poor in James work for the landowners. The poor in James are dependent on their wages for their daily bread. The poor in James are those who, while having a job, are still really poor. This is not a commentary on our day. James is not making a jump from the poor in their context and saying, well, there you go, this is the poor in your context. There's a stark difference between the ungodly, rich, and the saved poor in the book of James because it's not all poor people that he has in mind, but saved poor people. The ungodly rich are contrasted to the saved poor. And you see that in chapter 2, verse 6. Listen, my beloved brothers, has God, uh, has not God chosen those who are poor in this world to be rich in faith? For this reason, James starts chapter 2 with these words. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Why? Why not show preferential treatment to the rich? Why should you not be partial to the rich? Because they are ungodly. They are not your brothers. They are not on your side. Does that make a little bit more sense now? I hope it does. The ungodly rich are in the church and have been elevated to a place of prominence. And so James uniquely has to deal with a situation where you have ungodly people in the church in a place of prominence. And I know it's hard for us to grasp this because we are thinking of church today. How is it possible that, that the rich can be in a place of prominence in a church because we are thinking through a post-Jewish understanding? Remember when the church started? It was started by what? Jews in a Jewish context. How do we know that? Verse 2. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly. You see that word assembly? You probably want to circle that, underline it, highlight whatever you do in your Bibles. That is so important to the entire writing of this book because that word assembly is synagogue. Synagogue. Which tells us the historical context in which this church met. And I'm going to deal with the synagogue next week. So I won't go into the, the, the nature of the synagogue. All that you need to know at this point in time, it tells us a little bit about how the church met in a synagogue. This was not just saved Jews. This included unbelieving, ungodly, rich Jews. For this reason, James writes to them, still meeting in the synagogue, and says to them, everyone that hears this, you are believers. Do not show partiality to those who are rich. Because the rich are ungodly and they persecute the poor, the safe poor. They are not your friends. They are not your brothers. They are God's enemies. James knows the struggles these saints have in the time that they that he writes. And so he says, do not hold 
the faith in our Lord with partiality. You see the word there, partiality? It's actually plural in the original. That is favoritisms, discriminations, or partialities. It's plural in form. So he's not thinking just about the, the contrast between rich and poor. It's any kind of discrimination, any kind of partiality. The problem that we have today is that people look at James as a whole without its historical context and say, well, the poor must be favored and the rich must be condemned. That is not the principle that James is teaching because the command is very clear. Do not show partiality. That is the command. Not show, show, not show favoritism to the poor and reject the rich. That is not what he's saying. He's saying as a general principle, do not show favoritism. He's not even telling us to choose the side of the poor, as so many commentators are saying. But rather, discrimination based on what you see, based on the external, is sin. This word here, Partiality literally means to receive face. In Afrikaans, we would say, He buys face for those of you who do not understand English. It makes no sense in English. Yeah, you know what I mean. Before I become a colored again. <laughs> this word, this Afrikaans idiom kind of, carries the idea to receive face. It means to perceive a person on the outside, then make judgments based on what you see. It pertains to making superficial judgments of a person purely based on what you see. If you look at uh, verse 2, notice the extravagant language that is used here. For if a man wearing a gold ring, why mention that? Fine clothing comes into your assembly. And a poor man in shabby clothing. That's all he has. He's just got the rag on his back. James makes a contrast by saying in Hebraic fashion that someone who comes in with nice, fine uh, clothing, I was going to say dining, but some of you may get offended, but clothing, and you show favoritism to that guy because he looks good on the outside. This is a sin that we all struggle with. This is a common sin that is even found in the church today. It may not be as widely contrasted as back in the day, between the rich and the poor, but it's something that takes place very commonly amongst believers. It could be discrimination based on your coffee brand, like some of you drink Frisco. Mm. I don't know if I can fellowship with you. Yes, like man. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. I, I sat with some Frisco drinkers yesterday. <laughs> just saying. I noticed the other coffee drinkers did not come to you. Just no, no, I, I sat with you. Favoritism and, and discrimination takes place on a daily basis. Sometimes you drive into an area and what happens? The windows go up. Why? Because we racially discriminate. You don't know if that guy who just happens to walk past your door is going to jump into your window. Most of the time they do, but you don't know. So you just, you, you, we make these judgments all the time. And I'm being a bit superfluous at the moment, but you get the point that it's something that we all struggle with. And sometimes it is necessary, but most time it is not. What James is after is the unjust distinctions that is being made. Distinctions that is purely made by what you see. So I will hang out with that guy because he's got a tag on his vest that indicates he comes from a good church or a good seminary. Mm, that's my kind of guy. But then he comes maybe from Westminster or he's covenantal and we're like, I cannot fellowship with that man. I just... 
can't. Why is this so bad? Well, this word appears in the Alex X, that is the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 15, where he translates this phrase, you shall not lift up your face to the poor. Now, that may seem a bit backward. Why would you not look up to the poor? And it literally means that you will not judge them based on what you see. You will not make a judgment and in conclusion based on what you see. If you have done that, you've made an evil judgment, an ungodly, unjust judgment. To give you a bit of a picture, imagine a Christian man walks in here with Jesus' shoes on. You know what that is, right? Some people say slip-slops. There is no such thing. It's flip-flops. He comes in, but the guy is maybe on holiday and doesn't have a decent hotel. Maybe the water's off. You don't know. So he didn't have a shower for a day or two. But the mere fact that he wears Jesus' shoes, he walks in smelling like, you know what? Nobody wants to sit next to him. And so you see how you know, he parts the Red Seas as he comes in. You get the picture. And nobody wants to fellowship with him. Nobody talks to him because what? He doesn't look like a Christian. He doesn't smell like a Christian. There's no way that this guy is a believer. We've made a discrimination based on what we see. As ridiculous as that is, that is exactly what James says in chapter 2. You look at the outside. That poor man is a righteous man. He smells. Yes, he stinks. He's got shabby clothing. That's okay. He's right with God because a virtue of a person is not based on how they look. doesn't matter if I've got a nice jacket on. This is a dead man's jacket, for goodness sake. It's nice, but he's, he's, the guy who gave it to me is dead. I don't know why you're laughing. See, God is not like man who discriminates based on what he sees. He does not. We, we have an example in the Old Testament. Remember Samuel? David? God does not look on the what? Outward, but looks at the heart. We know that to be true. He does not make judgments of people based on the outward. David should not be king. The shortest guy. He may have looked a little better than his brothers, but... He was the shortest guy, a shepherd, for goodness sake. This guy should not be leading people. God chose him. God is not like man that discriminate on race, color, economic status, social standing, or even social connections. Oh, you know what? I shook the hand of that guy that knows that other guy that knows the other guy. As if that's something. God is not like that. The Old Testament is filled with examples that God does not discriminate. For instance, Deuteronomy 10, 17. For the Lord, your God, is God of gods and Lord of lords, and the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial, who does not have a lifted face, and takes no bribe. You can write down Isaiah eleven three four. The expectation of the Messiah is that he would not be partial. Romans chapter 2, 11. God will judge both Jew and Gentile. He doesn't take sides. If you reject his divine revelation in his word, he will judge you. Colossians chapter 3, 25 echoes the same thing, that there is a future retribution of all those who refuse his word. The wrongdoer will be paid back. Why? Because God is not partial. Acts chapter 10, 34, God deals with saving the Gentiles in the same way as he saved the Jews, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. He does not show partiality. The Jews didn't have a special means other than or, or over the, 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 the Gentiles. God does not choose a person based on his riches or his poverty. But the fact that 
they who love him and obey him, ye, they are, are those whom he will receive. Paul, in the book of Galatians, where he speaks about Peter making a distinction, being partial against the Gentiles, says that God is not a respecter of person. God does not um, show partiality. He does not take bribes and is not partial. Over and over there is a consistent testimony that God is not partial. That is why James makes this case. My brothers do not show partiality. Yet in so many modern commentaries and, and articles, I can't tell you how many times I read this phrase. God is on the side of the poor. God has chosen the poor. It just happens to be that the people that James writes to are poor. Because everybody, if you were not rich, were what? Poor. To suggest that God chooses the side of the poor is to also suggest that God discriminates against the rich. And yet scripture testifies that God does not show partiality. The problem is that that we have is that we see poor in scripture and the rich through the lens of how we understand rich and poor today. One author says this, quote, Charity is not the answer anymore. So it's, it's an answer, but not the answer anymore. Uh, it's not the answer anymore than our governmental handouts. The answer is to reverse the structure of the economy so that the poor share more equitably in its resources. In quote. You see how far it's going? That's a political argument. That's not a Christian argument. Let's have a share. Let's be equitable. Let's give them a little bit more. Let them have a share in our wealth. This is not what James is talking about. There's no way he says in here that the poor must be elevated. In fact, he says to the poor man, glory in your what? Exaltation. Why? Because your exaltation is found in Christ, not in your social status. What he's saying is don't discriminate based on what you see. Don't look on the outward appearance and presume you know everything about that person. The second reality I want you to see in verse 1 of chapter 2 is that discriminations are inconsistent with the faith of our Lord. Now, at this stage, I I may confuse some of you, and I hope to clear it up on Wednesday if I'm not able to clear it up now because my time is, is running out. But the ESV reads this way. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. The command is qualified and complemented by two clauses. The first is this, the faith of our Lord. And the second is this, Jesus Christ, the glory. I know you don't see that in your text. And, and I want to explain this, so give me a moment. If you have an ESV, it's going to be a little bit more difficult for you to see. NSB is closer, but King James and the new King James have this right on the head. The sentence literally reads this way. My brothers, do not hold the faith of our Lord in partialities. Jesus Christ, the glory. That's awkward English, and it doesn't really make sense to us. And so the translators have decided to make it a little bit more smoother for us. But something got lost in translation, literally. Faith of our Lord has now been translated faith in our Lord. Let me say it this way. That that construction can never become faith in our Lord. It's in grammatical impossibility. There are limitations placed on how that grammatical construction can be translated. And in the Lord is not one of it. So what they've done is they've taken the word in partiality and applied it to in uh, uh, um, faith in the Lord, which, which is a problem. The New King James says it this way. Do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. A little bit better because it speaks of faith of our Lord which I think the King James, the, the 1611 is, is 
closer to, to the New King James. That's why I prefer the New King James because it holds a lot of those nuances a little bit better. The faith of our Lord cannot mean faith in our Lord. It's two different statements. Even though faith in, in our Lord is theologically true, grammatically that's awkward. You cannot make it mean that. So then the meaning can only be one of two things based on the construction of this form of the word. can either mean the faith that the Lord had or the faith that is given by the Lord. The faith of the Lord, possessed by the Lord and given by the Lord. I take it to be the, the latter. Faith given by the Lord. So this would be the Lord is the source of our faith. Now keep that in mind and let me read it again to you. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith that has been given by our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, be, you see an inclusion of Lord of glory. There's two lords in this verse. There's just one, which is the second complication. Most reliable exegetical commentators agree that this has to be taken as the faith of our Lord, meaning the faith that God gives, the faith that the Lord gives, because it cannot mean the faith of our Lord. Since we naturally relate faith to saving faith, it will be difficult to explain that as being the prominent view. I, I know I'm going to lose some of you on this issue, but that's okay. Th there is one point that I want to make on this. Faith that comes from our Lord, if that is what he's saying, is incompatible with discrimination of any kind. That's the sense. Do not hold the faith of our Lord, the faith that belongs to our Lord, that he gives to you, in partiality. Why? Because partiality is not compatible with the faith granted by our Lord. Does that make better sense? That is the point that James is making. So don't hold the faith that you receive in partiality because you cannot. If God gives a faith, if the Lord grants a faith, you cannot and must not be partial. Why? Because he is not partial. So why is this so difficult? Because of the way that the Greek is structured. And I understand there's a lot of nuances here. The point that James is simply making is that it is incompatible for you to say that you have faith and then discriminate. That is not a, a proper understanding of faith. Why? The reason is stuck in the titles that is given to the name Jesus. Look at the text again. The faith of our Lord. You could include a comma there. Jesus Christ. Title, Lord, who's he talking about? Jesus, qualified by Messiah, the Christ, the Lord of glory. I, I don't do this often, but that translation is incorrect. The Lord of glory should just say the glory. Wednesday, when you come, I'll show you. Now, if you look at the text, there are three realities that is highlighted about Jesus. He's first of all, Lord, our Lord, and then secondly, he's Christ. What is the third one? The glory. That's the last word. The glory is separated from the Lord. There is no connection. The, the, the way that it is written means that it is far removed from the word glory, so it doesn't modify the word glory, but it does modify Jesus Christ. That's why it ends on the glory. So who is Jesus Christ? He is the glory. Now think Jewish. When they hear the word glory, who are they thinking of? God, Old Testament, and possibly the Shekinah glory. What does John say in chapter 1? That we beheld his what? Glory of the only begotten. Hmm, interesting. Listen to Psalm 22. Who is the King of glory, while the Lord strong and mighty. Hebrews, uh, in Hebrews we see that Christ is the radiance of the glory. In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter, um, chapter 4, we see that the glory of God is in the face of Jesus Christ. In chapter 4 verse 6, we see that the glory of Christ is the image of, so Christ is the image of, of God. 
the glory of Christ is the image of God. In Titus, we await, take note of this, the appearing of the glory of our great God. We appear, we are waiting for the appearing of the glory. Not, not glorious appearing. We want to see the glory. Who is the glory? It is Christ. There are many, many allusions to the fact that the Christ, Jesus, is the glory. But that falls on deaf ears because we are not Jews. We don't think like they do. So when John says here that, the, that Jesus is Lord, Christ, and the glory is identifying deity in three ways. His Lord means that he is God. His Christ meaning that he's the Messiah, the anointed one, sent who will be a man, God in human flesh. He's the glory, identifies him as divine. What James is doing is making Jesus the central argument in this entire verse, saying that Jesus is equal with God. He's Lord and Messiah and the glory. This is who he is. So if you receive faith from Jesus, then you cannot, cannot, cannot be partial. Why? Because he's God. His whole argument hinges on the fact that Jesus is God because God is not what? Partial. That is what I led with. If God is not partial and God gives faith to his people, then his people are not allowed to be what? Partial. That's the case he's making. I know that was awkward, very technical, but I hope you get it. James is making a case for the divinity of Jesus Christ, saying that, hang on, if you have faith granted by him, you have the faith of our Lord, you cannot discriminate. It's a command that every believer must submit to. James makes his case against discrimination, not based on some emotive view or, or, or the poor in the church. He bases it on the fact that Jesus is Lord and the glory. And for that reason, we have no right to discriminate against his people. One last proof. Chapter 5. If you follow the word Lord throughout the book of James, you will notice that he uses it interchangeably between God the Father and Jesus Christ. And he does it for a specific reason, to show the equality of Jesus with God. But in chapter 5, notice what he says in verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Who's the Lord? Chapter 2, verse 1. Jesus. Christ, the glory. Keep that in mind. See how the farmer waits, uh, waits for the precious fruit of the earth. Be patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your heart for the Lord is coming or for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Hmm. Lord is in the Old Testament, is connected to the glory and the judgment. Lord is both the glorious one and the judging one. Yeah, the Lord is coming to judge, and that's why he says be patient. Because you've been granted faith in the Lord. He's the judge. Don't you judge. Let me close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you. For such grace in your word that provides us the ability to see you for who you are. You are Lord, you are Christ, and you are the glory. Lord, help us to see that we have no right to discriminate against one another. We have no right to make superficial judgments against each other. Why? Because you have given us faith and you do not discriminate. Pray for grace, Lord. Because so often we fall into the sin. So often we just follow the line and we do what others do. Help us to hold this faith that you have given to us dearly, sincerely, as precious 
as a gift that it is from you. Pray now your blessing as we honor you with our lives, seeking to magnify you for your grace and for your glory alone. Amen.